you're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. And today we're going to talk about the story of Stephen White Knight Jr. Um, This story hits pretty close to home for me just because um, I have a lot of family in that area and I've actually been following the story um, since he went missing. In the early morning hours of January 14th, 2016, a white 1997 Ford probe was found near the Bloomsburg Municipal Airport. The keys were in the ignition, but no one was in the car. A set of footprints led halfway across the snow-covered bridge over the Susquehanna River. If you were to keep walking across the bridge, you'd end up walking along densely wooded Route 487 into Catawissa. But the footprints, which most assume belonged to Stephen White Knight Jr., stopped right in the middle of the bridge. Unfortunately, not much is known beside that. Stephen White Knight Jr. was 31 years old when he went missing. He was living with his girlfriend of 13 years, Michelle Zieber, and they were fostering a 10-year-old child. Uh, The child has since been removed from the home. The couple had two black lab mixes, which Stephen apparently adored. The last time Michelle Zieber saw Stephen White Knight Jr. was around 1 a.m. on the morning of January 14th after a shift at Domino's Pizza at their home on West Main Street in Bloomsburg. When she woke up around 7 a.m., Stephen was missing. What she did find were newspapers in their house ready to be delivered by Stephen, who also worked as a paper delivery man. Stephen had picked up the papers around 3.30 a.m., but no one ever heard from him again after that. When does this guy sleep? Never. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. As someone who needs... A large amount of sleep. I don't, I could not function like this. <laughs> True. He apparently completed about a third of his delivery route. It's unclear to me who exactly reported Stephen missing, but his car was found parked at the Bloomsburg Municipal Airport with his phone and keys inside. The airport is right next to the bridge to Route 487, and footprints were found going halfway across the bridge. Since it had been snowing, there is a possibility that road salt may have melted potential evidence away. No other evidence was found that Stephen had even been on the bridge. Authorities wanted to check the water for Stephen, but weather conditions kept this from happening. It was considered too dangerous to place a fire department boat in the water. A helicopter was utilized instead, but nothing was spotted. In the following days, police, firefighters, and rescuers searched the icy river from Bloomsburg to Northumberland. It was reported that Stephen had a history of disappearing for weeks at a time. There were also a couple of local articles that came out after the disappearance about how he had been misleading his fiance into thinking he was in the process of buying the house that they were renting. Before he went missing, Stephen had told Michelle Zieber that he had gotten a first-time home buyer's loan approved by the bank and the house was appraised and inspected, but none of that was actually true. She started to get suspicious when he could never offer any proof of what he claimed to be doing. Michelle believes that he ran off because he was afraid to face her. She was quoted as saying, White Knight is the quiet type who tends to bottle up his emotions. 
He doesn't speak about his feelings, she explained, and his dad says he never handled pressure much. He's a good liar. I think we can all admit that we have exes that lie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure all of mine did, so fair enough. <laughs> what's the what's the point of that lie? What do you get for it? You're easily going to be found out when you don't end up purchasing the home. That's a pretty important thing to lie or not lie about. Well, I wonder if that's what she wanted to what yeah. she wanted. Like after being together that long and not having like a solid commitment, though I feel like fostering is a huge commitment all in itself. I was gonna say fostering, like maybe it was you need to show that stability. Oh, that yeah. too. Yeah. I think he was probably under a lot of pressure to do to get the home. So well, he definitely worked a lot. I mean, to own a home is a lot of money working all the time. So it seemed like he had the work ethic to do it. Just not, it's weird why he would lie about it. As Sarah mentioned, there is a lot that you have to go through and there's a lot of ways to like prove it. And like, obviously if you don't own a house, like, I don't know, it's just weird. Yeah. No, I gotcha. About a year after Stephen disappeared, his girlfriend, Michelle Zieber, claimed that he had contacted her via a phone call on the morning of December 20th, 2016. Apparently, he wanted to see how she was doing and let her know that he didn't leave because of her and that he was stressed about the house business and being a foster parent. She said they spoke briefly about his dogs, and then Michelle told him that she didn't want to be late for work and hung up. Wait, so after a full year, she he calls her and she's like, hey, I got to go to work. How do you let someone ghost you like that and then just have a casual conversation like it's a typical Tuesday? Yeah, it's suspicious to say the least. Unfortunately, Michelle says she no longer has a record of the phone call as she deleted it. She said the call was so short, she didn't think the police would be able to trace it. I have so many questions about what I found in this article. I like I want to call double bullshit. Like I want to back up what Amanda just said. It was 2016. You could go to a phone company and find records. It what you know, you didn't need to. It's not like, you know, this is the first thing that comes to my brain, but it's not like in the Santa Claus when Santa kidnaps his son and they try to trace the call because it's 92 or whatever year that movie came out. Like, it was 2016. There are cell phone bills that log everything. It wouldn't have any of the content, but it would at least have a number and a length of the call. So I, I call double bullshit. That just doesn't seem plausible. Yeah, and it seems like they definitely didn't believe her enough to even look into it um, because her cell phone records were actually never pooled. So I okay. don't think it was taken seriously. From what I understand, it's pretty expensive to go through that process. And so if they think that she was lying, that's probably why they didn't bother. That makes sense. Yeah, I... I feel like, I mean, me personally, I just assume it's like super easy for police to subpoena phone records and it just like happens seamlessly, but I guess it is still pretty complicated and expensive. 
Well, I know for a fact, like for those private companies, especially these companies like Snapchat and stuff, it is so hard. And it's like, I know authorities have like trouble pulling teeth. And I, there's a story that I follow about two boys that went missing in Florida when they took their parents' boat sailing. Apparently they did it all the time. It took them months to get the phone records back. And I, (laughs) why, why? Like, why does it take months? Like, seriously, even when their parents could like give them the login information, but they wanted it pulled specifically from the carrier. Like they can pull the pictures off of Snapchat. Oh yeah. Nothing is private. <laughs> Do you need to yeah. go delete some things, Amanda? Do you need to be excused? <laughs> no, I just, you know, it's supposed to delete after so long. That's what they tell you. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by SNR Midnight Designs, a family-owned small business known for their custom and personalized crafts. I personally have ordered from SNR and not only got great quality sweatshirts for our family, but also had a great experience working with Sam and Robbie. In addition to clothing, SNR will also customize cups and signs, and they aim to make crafts that make smiles. Check out SNR Midnight Designs on Facebook and Etsy today. That's S ampersand R midnight designs on Facebook and S R midnight designs with no ampersand or spaces on Etsy. So after allegedly receiving the call, Michelle contacted the detective in charge of Stephen's case, as well as Stephen's father, Stephen White Knight Sr. Mr. White Knight Sr. says he doesn't believe a word of what Michelle is saying and that she is probably doing it to gain attention or notoriety. He can't believe that she wouldn't ask him where he was or that she would just hang up and delete the call. And then she just went to work like it was any other day. Exactly. So I saw someone mention either on Reddit or Web Sleuths that, you know, he did have a history of disappearing. So maybe she was just like sick of his shit. (laughs) But I can only see that to a point. Like, you know, the rest of his family is looking for him. If he really did call and she deleted it, that's such a shitty thing to do to withhold that from his family. So there's also the fact that Stephen's father agreed to do an interview for a news station And when Michelle found out that he'd done it without including her, she was livid. She not only took it up with Stephen's father, she called the news station and asked them why they would run the story without her involvement. Well, okay, then. What? So, yeah. Okay. Um, But Stephen White Knight Sr., the father, he's been suspicious of her since she started dating someone two weeks after Stephen disappeared and started sending him weird texts and calling him saying she was scared because the police were watching her. And I find it interesting that she started dating someone two weeks later if he had a history of disappearing four weeks at a time, like it was reported did how did she know he wasn't coming back this time or had they maybe broken up prior to this when she found out that he had been lying about the house it's just that sounds like strange to me she's sketchy yeah yeah so like i said neither her phone or phone records were subpoenaed to confirm whether the call was real um And like Amanda had said, if it's expensive and they really didn't believe her, then they just really wouldn't bother. 
she was quoted as saying, I'd like to see him for closure. I'd like to do many more things, but that would be illegal. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what she meant by that, but <laughs> interesting thing to say. Gets sketchier and sketchier. Where is the kid in all of this? The foster child. I want to know why he was taken. The foster child yeah. was removed from the home. I think not. Was he removed to go back with his like family? Because I know foster systems, their ideal thing is to always be with the blood family. Or was he taken, taken after, after the, situation? the situation? Yeah. And there's really not too, um, too much about the child. I'm sure they just wanted to keep the child out of all this mess from the media. But... Um, hopefully she's in a better situation. So his father, uh, white Knight senior has been quoted as saying, if I have to get on the police chief's desk and scream, I will, this is a bunch of crap. And I'm assuming that was referring to Michelle, um, spreading her stories. So I like him. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He's still very much, um, he definitely has hope that they're going to find him. So, um, we're going to get into the couple of theories that are out there. Um, I think the number one theory would be suicide though. The original story in the press enterprise, the local paper said there was no reason to believe that white Knight intended to harm himself, but it's just that. How do you explain the footprints halfway across the bridge. But where would his body be? Like, I feel like you would find his body at this point. And I'm assuming that the reason that they didn't go in the water, because it was cold out, right? It was yes. January. So it could have been like snow and ice in the water. You're not depending. I mean, wouldn't you just lay on the water, you know, like lay on the ice. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even if it wasn't frozen solid, it's definitely moving a lot slower and you know, you're not going to get whisked down the river. You're going to be in that area. And even though they didn't search by boat, they searched by helicopter. Just, you know, I don't know. And I was wondering too, I actually, like I said, I have family in the area and connections. I was actually there about a week ago and I was just kind of looking around that area and I actually had talked to the person that reported the footprints on the bridge. Um, they work for PennDOT. So they were there early in the morning and saw the footprints. And I was wondering if there's like a railing on the side of the bridge. So I was wondering if the snow was disturbed on the railing, but I was going to ask that. I mean, same I feel question. like then, yeah, I feel like that would be a huge clue, but the railing is actually very rounded, so there probably wouldn't have really been snow sitting on it, so you wouldn't really be able to tell. There wouldn't be snow on it to be disturbed. Well, you said it was it's a bridge right off where an airport parking lot is, correct? Yes. What, yeah, it's like a like, small municipal airport. Isn't there cameras? <laughs> With the cameras. I know. Probably, but if you see how it's set up, and I'm going to um, post a picture on the website of like a map of the area, but you wouldn't really need to have cameras pointing at the bridge and the runway and everything and the large part of the airport is facing away from the bridge. Oh, I see. Okay. So, yeah, unfortunately. 
they wouldn't, they probably don't have anything pointed that way. So Amanda found this and she lists him as a guy that comments on footprints a lot on web sleuth. (laughs) He says that if the footprints led to the bridge and nowhere else, that pretty much means he's in the river. The only exception, and this is rare, is for someone savvy enough to walk backwards in their own prints to the starting point. I can tell if someone has done this. Um, It's referred to as indirect register, but I would need to see the prints at the time they were found, which I mean... Who would really go to the trouble of doing that and walking backwards unless he really wanted people to think that he committed suicide? I mean, if he's trying to get away from situations, um, I know we've talked about um, maybe he was really stressed out or, you know, there was something he was trying to get away from. It seemed like he didn't really want to commit to his girlfriend, fiance, whatever their relationship was. Maybe he wanted a new start and said, here's a way I can do it and just somehow thought of that. That's I never would have even thought about like walking forward and then walking backwards. And I wonder, too, when I know there was snow on the ground, but was it done snowing or did it maybe continue to snow a little bit more or, you know, like wind drifts? That even if he didn't step perfectly back in the same spots, if he went backwards, there might be a little bit of kind of coverage almost that it would still look like it was only going one direction and not like a forward and then a backward. Sorry, that was a lot. Yeah, (laughs) no, that's a good point. Um, But I'm thinking, too, because... From what I saw, I believe the footprints led from his car and then the path like you know, halfway across the bridge, if he walked backwards and then went somewhere else, wouldn't there eventually be footprints in different places? I mean, I know what you said about the snow and like it was said with, um, like the salt on the road and everything could have messed some things up, but I don't know. I just don't see it. So I just consulted with my husband since he does water rescue. Yes. And, um, I was like, how wouldn't you see them on the ice or what would you see? And he said, well, if there's still an ice on the water, you would, and you throw a cinder block into ice, it's going to go through it and the water underneath still moves. So I'd be interested to know if there was like a hole or how like frozen the river was that. Yeah, that was there like a mark where he went in, like as sad, as sad as that sounds, but like was there a hole where he went in or was it just like icy and snowy and they didn't want to go in or but he said, you know, if they he goes in the water, the current's still moving under the ice and snow. That makes sense. And I don't think I don't know that I've ever seen it really frozen solid, especially in that area. It's pretty wide at that point and You know, it does move pretty fast. Like I said, probably slower when there's ice in it, but I don't think it would have been completely frozen over. So I'm thinking maybe like chunks of ice. So maybe you wouldn't even really be able to tell if there was like a hole. But even still, Um, depends. And the chunks can keep them under longer, but still you would think like at this point, this many years into it, that he, there would have been some evidence somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, the other theory, which we already touched on, was running away from the stress of foster parenting and the 
home buying lies because, yeah, I mean, I assume he lied because he was being pressured to buy the house. So, you know, that's, that is a possibility. Yeah. But if he ran away, like wouldn't his stuff have been used like his social or credit cards or an account of some sort, just because I don't, I don't know how people like go somewhere with nothing and just start somewhere like that freaks me out. Like having to like move and buy a house. I was overwhelmed. I don't know how someone can just leave and be like, Hey, bye. I'm going to go start somewhere else. Freaks me out. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't know how you could not use any of your accounts or anything. There was another case that I started to look into and it turned out to just be like a runaway person instead of actually missing, but he left, um, and he was caught in, I think it was Michigan. Um, his family reported him missing. He was on his bicycle and the police like stopped him because he was riding it on an interstate and they were like, what are you doing? You can't ride a bike on an interstate. And when they ran his ID, because obviously he would had to hand it over, they, it came back missing. So they put him in a hotel and then he went and he used his credit card and everything the next day. But when police went back to get him out of the hotel, he was gone and he left all of his stuff there because he just didn't want to be found. And now if he would get like pulled over or the police would question him, he didn't have to lie because he didn't have ID. Hmm. That's really interesting, but that's so much planning and effort. Yeah. And effort. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Um, and I mean, I guess the point is, is that it is possible to do that if he just wants to. It is. And peace out. When he first went missing, the police chief mentioned that there was a local man who had gone missing for like a whole year and then showed back up. And I mean, now it's been five years that Stephen has been missing. But yeah, I mean, it does happen. Why did it just hit me that 2016 was five years ago? Do you feel old? <laughs> I feel like time's going too freaking fast. Well, we lost like a freaking year and a half. This Well, there's that. You know. From COVID. 2020 didn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. It didn't count as anything. Um, so the last theory is, of course, foul play. You know, if someone had caused him to disappear. There's never been any sort of suspects named or anything like that, but again, a possibility just because we just don't know anything. And it's interesting that his keys were still in the ignition and everything in his car. It's just very strange circumstances. I am kind (laughs) of curious why he got out of the car in the first place. Like, why was your car left there and you were just walking across the bridge, but leaving the car running? Like you said, like, it's weird that they're in there. Um, I mean, where maybe we already said this and I just missed it. Where does that bridge lead to from where his car was? Basically the woods. <laughs> um, okay. It's just like a heavily wooded. Um, it's Route 487. So, you know, it's a pretty main road, but it's just surrounded by trees. And then there's really nothing until you get to the actual town of Catawissa and it doesn't make it, someone would have seen him walking along there. It's weird. It doesn't make sense that like, he, you know, he would go get in an airplane because it wasn't like a normal airport. It was just 
I'm assuming it's all private. Yeah. He would have had to like know someone and I'm sure they would have some sort of record of a plane taking off. Yeah. But it definitely doesn't make sense to me that he would walk somewhere from there. It's just a very strange place to leave everything and go walk somewhere. There's just nowhere to go without being seen. My biggest thought that I'm thinking about is why the heck did he deliver part of his newspapers? Yeah, I was going to say that. That's a lot of effort to do before you leave. Like you're leaving. Why the hell are you going to deliver like what half of them? Why? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense unless it's like the world's best, well thought out plan to disappear. It could have been like in the middle of him delivering that he's just fed up with life. And a lot of times like suicide and stuff is just a heat of the moment kind of thing. He could have said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm done delivering papers. But then why would he bring them back to put them back in the house? Wouldn't he just like leave it where he was and just be like, peace? Maybe he could only fit half of them in his car. That's what I was thinking, Amanda. Like maybe he had to split delivery for some reason. Didn't think about that. I think he was abducted by aliens. Just (laughs) like laser beamed up. Honestly... That's kind of what it seems like because it's it's just a very bizarre situation. I really don't like the girlfriend. I feel like that's super sketchy. Yeah, it's it's just hard to tell. I'm, you know, maybe she is just looking for attention. And It's hard too cuz none of us have know. ever been in this position. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. hard to look at how somebody reacts to something. I mean, we do it. We I, we always hear stories and make assumptions and and whatnot. But I think especially in something like this, I mean, if my husband just disappeared tomorrow, I could not tell you how I would react whatsoever. And I would probably seem a little crazy to, I already seem crazy to people, but I would seem even crazier to people because how do you process something like that? And I think it's, it's easy to point fingers but you have to also understand. Well, you wouldn't get a boyfriend two weeks later. No. I think that's uh, well, like the yeah, part that's that true. I'm really having a hard time with. Like, I could see a month later, two months later. But like Grace said, if he has a history of disappearing, like. Wouldn't you expect I, him back? Yeah. Like. Unless you were already broken up. I guess. That's still really fast from 13 years. But maybe not. Yeah. Unless she was already seeing him and that had something to do with his disappearance. Yeah. I mean, we just, we really don't know. Obviously, that's speculation. Yeah. Total speculation. (laughs) Everything we do is speculation. (laughs) But when you think about it, she she lost her partner. Well, he disappeared. Then the kid was taken. That's got to be, like, rough, especially if she wasn't involved. Like, everything gone and i'm sure like not only that since half her partner's gone and like how's she gonna pay her bills like uh, to me like he made a lot of money bringing in money it sometimes it's easier to live when you're doing it with two people you have two incomes and maybe she just needed the support um emotionally physically mentally stability wise i don't know that's true. I totally agree. I, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like Sarah said, I'm sure we w- might all do 
things that would make us seem crazy in the media. So you really just never know. So I will post information about uh, Stephen White Knight's appearance when he went missing. Um, but you know, I'll read it out here. He was a 31 year old white male. He was five, eight to five ten, about 160 to 170 pounds. He was wearing an orange hunting jacket, a dark blue Denver Broncos hooded sweatshirt, a Domino's pizza shirt, black pants, black sneakers, and a Denver Broncos knit cap. He had graying brown hair, hazel eyes, and his hair was in a buzz cut at the time of his disappearance. He also wears glasses. So five years later, the family continues looking for closure. They ask the public to take a look at the pictures, which we will post on our website, and get familiar with them in hopes a lead to his whereabouts will bring them closure. Uh, the number to the Bloomsburg police is 570-784-6779. Uh, Detective Melanie Riedler was originally in charge of the investigation, but the case has since gone cold. Uh, Bloomsburg police chief says that um, Stephen's information has been entered into multiple databases to assist other agencies. <laughs> This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, and it's Sarah. Today, we are going to take a look at the case of the Perry County Jane Doe, and she's also known as the girl with the turquoise jewelry. So she was discovered June 20th, 1979 in Watts Township. Uh, Watts is between Duncannon and Newport in Perry County, and it kind of sits in a triangle between the Juniata and Susquehanna rivers. Um, and that means that it sits between 1115 and 322 and you can like take 1115 up turn into watts drive through the township and then you'll wind up on 322 so um the perry county jane doe was found near the juniata river which is the 322 side of watts um it's believed that she was born around 1941 which would have made her roughly 36 to 37 years old when she died. She was between 5 foot 2 and 5 foot 9, somewhere between the age of 15 and 30 at the time of her death, although she may have been as old as 38. She is a white woman with straight or wavy blonde or light brown hair. And she weighed somewhere between 105 pounds and 125 pounds. So there's a lot of difference between a lot of these guesses. When her remains were found, they were skeletonized. And her time of death was estimated to have been months prior. So they really were guessing 
on some of the uh, measurements that they were giving and the age. Um, she was wearing a tan button-up top, white boots with silver buckles, red and gray socks, and blue pants that were made from a knitted wool that had strands of red thread in them. She had two tops on under her jacket. She had a white shirt and a blue tank top. Her shoes are believed to have been about eight and a quarter inches long. And you can actually see images of everything along with every sketch and 3D rendering and everything from uh, this Jane Doe at the network.org And you just can search Perry County Jane Doe. Um, and we'll have that link in our blog post for this episode on the website as well. So do we know what the circumstances surrounding her discovery were? Um, like exactly where her body was, who found her, etc.? So I know she was found over an embankment by a stonemason, but that's really all I could find. Um, knowing the area, I would assume so the river runs, like I said, right along 322 and there's just like a guide rail and then um, there's some rocks that lead down to the river. So I'm assuming that she was just kind of in that rocky area. Um maybe she had been further upstream and it kind of got pushed against the rocks and then the uh, power of water kind of pushed it up more, but that's all I could find. She did have some dental work done and she had a rib fracture that had healed at some point earlier in her life. The rib was her ninth left rib. Um, looking at her dental records, it appears that she had good dental hygiene practices, no evidence of any sort of disease or anything on her teeth. Um, they're not sure if she ever had braces, but her teeth looked really good other than just the occasional, you know, dental work and cavities that everyone ends up having. Um, Based on an analysis of her bones, it's thought that she spent a lot of time living in the northwestern U.S. or southern Canada, somewhere near the Great Lakes. Um, now, I don't, I don't think northwestern U.S. and the Great Lakes are super close, so I'm not entirely sure. Um, I guess more north central, um, but somewhere near in the Great Lakes at least from when she was a child into her early teen years, there is a thought that she may have recently traveled to Pennsylvania from having been somewhere in the southwestern U.S. Um, I found a report from Allie Lanyon as part of the Mid-State Mysteries series that ran on ABC 27 News, where she reported that Dr. Christine France from the Smithsonian Museum Conservation Institute had completed tests to identify the hydrogen and oxygen isotopes in samples from Jane Doe's bones, teeth, and hair. So in this report, uh, Dr. France explains that teeth can tell a scientist where a person spent their adolescence. Their hair will tell scientists where somebody was most recently. And then the bone is going to give a snapshot of the last 15 years or so of this person's life. I just have to say this technology is freaking amazing. Right? It absolutely baffles my mind. Um, now, because of all of this, investigators are leaning toward the idea that she was an out-of-towner 
because it would explain why, you know, nobody reported anybody missing in the area or um, why even after all of these sketches have been done and these renderings have been created that no one recognizes her. Um, they're thinking that she's definitely from out of the area, most likely out of the state. Um, now, at the top of this case, I did say that she is known as the girl with the turquoise jewelry. So when she was found, she had several pieces of jewelry on. Um, she had two silver rings that both had turquoise stones in them, one of which also had onyx in it. Um, the one was just solid turquoise and the other was kind of layered with pieces of onyx and turquoise. She had a bracelet on her right arm and a turquoise necklace and earrings. Because of the amount of turquoise and the presence of the onyx in the one, um, the one ring, authorities believe that there is some sort of tie to the southwestern states, specifically Arizona or New Mexico. I feel like this is kind of a Native American theme. And from what I read, the turquoise jewelry started in the 1860s and was considered a symbol of wealth to the Navajo Indians. So would it be possible to try and trace the jewelry back to where it was made? Um, I took a trip to a rock shop recently, so I'm basically an expert now. So depending on the quality of the stones, they could be fairly rare pieces. I know a lot of turquoise isn't even actual turquoise, and to find really good quality is pretty rare. So I'm not sure, but I can show you the pictures and you can give your expert take on, <laughs> you know, whether the stones are legit or not. Um, I actually found a thread on Reddit and I went to go back and verify it and I cannot find the thread anymore. Um, the poster was plamge. I don't even know how to pronounce this, but P L A M G E. And I found their comments and everything, but I cannot find this specific one. So maybe I dreamed it. No idea. But this poster was able to get in touch with a company that specializes in handmade Native American wares. And basically, and this is what I wanted to confirm, but I couldn't find it again. They said that, of course, they were only able to look at photos because the jewelry itself is part of the evidence. But based on the photos, it is likely authentic, um, but they really couldn't tell much more because of not being able to touch it and really um, investigate it. Um, now, it does have that kind of like Amanda said, like it's got that Native American feel to it. Um, honestly, that I don't know why I said honestly, you can you can cut the word honestly there. Um, it does have that feel to it and it lines up with what um, Dr. France found with the bone analysis that there would be some sort of connection to the Southwest. Um, I know when I went on my honeymoon, we went out west and there were just stands everywhere that you could buy. And it was mostly turquoise and silver jewelry. And that's, you know, what she was wearing. Now, obviously, things were different in the 70s, but, um, you know, it was. It was still prominent back then. Yeah, so things were different in the 70s, but it would still be sold probably in a similar way. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I don't think they look super rare, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if it's the certain cut of turquoise or whatever, it could be. Um, I also don't know that having that information would narrow it down too much because, you know, she probably wasn't carrying a debit card with her in, you know, the 60s or 70s when she bought it. She probably would have had cash. Um, No paper trail. Right. So she was buried shortly after she was found, but her body was exhumed in 2008 when the case was reopened. Now, when they exhumed her body, they did record her DNA and dental records, which are now still on file, just in the event that new information would end up becoming available. Were they able to find out anything more specific about her with new technology, like um, a smaller age or height range? No, um, everything I found is still giving the same information. Now, it's possible that when things first came out, it was a much larger range, and everything I'm finding now is updated from 08. I wasn't really into this case when I was in middle school, so I don't know what anything was like before that point. Um, but everything I'm seeing is consistent, and that's what's up on NamUs. So I would think that they would have the right um, information on there. Um, now, there are a few different reconstructions of what it's believed she may have looked like in life, um, and they're posted on our Instagram and the blog on our website. Unfortunately, because of the state she was in when she was discovered, because she was skeletonized, her cause of death is unknown, but police do consider it to be suspicious. One theory that came up was this idea that there were two Canadians who went missing around this time. Um, they did DNA and dental analysis, and both of them were excluded from being this doe that was found. Um, I did end up looking through missing persons reports from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, and Iowa. Um, and I didn't find any that lined up with the broken rib, the description, and the time period. Um, so it's possible that it was just not reported or that it was outside of those states, but I tried to stick kind of with that Great Lakes area. So again, this is a Jane Doe, and it's believed that she was born around 1941, so she would have been about 36, 37 years old at the time that she died. She's between 5'2 and 5'9, between ages 15 and 30, and it's possible that she was as old as 38. She had blonde or light brown hair and between 105 and 125 pounds. If you have any information about this, please contact the Perry County Crime Stoppers at 1-866-210-8477 or Pennsylvania State Police Trooper Donald Tuning at 717-567-3110. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. 
Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.